Hello everyone, so good to be with you. We don't take for granted that you have joined us like this and we're here just for a short time. So we trust that we'll grow together and learn together and be encouraged together. It's Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus went into Jerusalem and they actually waved palm branches and thus Palm Sunday. And uh, may the Lord bless you. I wanna pray for us as we break the word here today and uh, learn together. Thank you, God. Be with each one that has joined in here. And I pray, God, that you would be with us and help us to grow and help us to embrace your word, help us to love you more, not just with our minds, may we learn, but with our hands and feet, may we do and act and be all that you've called us to be. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus had a question that he asked his disciples, two questions really, and the first one was, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so then they start answering him in verse 14. They replied, uh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I mean, Jesus had gained in popularity and the people were so intensely interested. They saw that he had authority and power. So he says, who do they say that I am? But then in verse 15, he gets very personal. He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And there's the key question for all of us. Who do you say that he is? And really, what are the implications when we answer that questions of who he is and who we say he is in our lives? We're approaching Passover. And as we come into the scripture today, which is Matthew 21, we find that Jerusalem is on edge. There's sort of turmoil, there's a stirring that's happening. And it's interesting, you know, uh, we see Jerusalem throughout history. We see Jerusalem throughout the Bible at Jesus' birth. Do you remember when the, the wise men left without telling Herod? There it is, Matthew 2, 3. It says, when King Herod heard this, he, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. And now we here are here approaching Jesus' death. And we're Matthew 21, verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, it says, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? Who is this? Jerusalem, Jesus wept for this city. We see it in Luke 19, 41. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. He so longed for them to embrace the kingdom that he brought. Matthew 23, verse 37, we see Jesus sort of crying out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often, he says, I have longed to gather you, your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. He, he wept over Jerusalem. So it's Passover time in Jerusalem. It's interesting that 10 years after the time of Christ, there was a census in the historical world taken in Jerusalem. And this is what they came uh, up with, that approximately sacrificial lambs in Jerusalem 10 years later on, 260,000 lambs would be slaughtered at Passover time in Jerusalem. They, a lamb could serve as many as 10 worshipers 
with one lamb as they brought their blood sacrifices under this uh, this this system under the law, the uh, Judaic system. So it, there could have been two million people in Jerusalem. And so we come to what we call the triumphal entry for, for obvious reasons, because Jesus comes into the city and there's this, this the groundswell of support and, and people breaking off branches and putting their coats. And as he comes in, they hail him as king. And it's recorded in all four gospels. It's a very key part of scripture and understanding redemption and the cross and Jesus, what he came to do for us. And so in Matthew 21, as we come to our scripture, Jesus sends two disciples to a village ahead. And he says, when you go there, you're going to find a donkey and a colt, and I want you to get them. And so very interesting. We're not going to dwell there too much. But he, he knew that the donkey was there. He sends them. He even gives them instructions if you are asked about it. And they were asked about it, what they should say. And now we come to verse 6. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 21, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them to do. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Verse 8, a very large crowd. They spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Verse 9, the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So we want to get a picture here. First of all, we don't think of this, but this was major public disobedience that was taking place here. I want to take you to a verse. John chapter 11, verse 57. But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. And so we, we just have the crowd being swept up together and they're calling out. There's, there's joy and, and understanding that nothing was going to stop this celebration. With one voice, this whole multitude was crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had either heard or seen his teaching, his authority, his miracles. And they were in Jerusalem. And remember what Jerusalem Passover was all about. The Passover was a celebration of another emancipation. When, Jesus, when God had taken them out of Egypt, and they were ready once again for a change because they were a nation in slavery to a powerful iron hand of Rome. It's interesting that this was the only time in ministry that Jesus actually planned and promoted a public demonstration. Uh, he had deliberately, through his ministry, so often avoided public scenes. I'll just take you to one place. And in Matthew 8, Jesus, after he heals a leper, what does he say? This, this happened several times, but one place. See that you don't tell anybody. He would heal and tell them, don't disclose this. Don't tell anybody. It's not my time. So obviously, as he comes into Jerusalem, the time is now. Now Jesus is the one to initiate. And I want us to think about how confusing this must have been for the disciples. And it's because of some of the things that Jesus had said earlier to them 
as they were approaching uh, Jerusalem. And so let's look at it. It's Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. He took the 12 disciples aside, and this is what he said to them. We are going up to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. They, they didn't want him to go to Jerusalem. They tried to stop him from going to Jerusalem. There's a lot of heat on right now. The, the, the Pharisees, have they, they hate him. They, they want to destroy him. Uh, they're, they're jealous. They are threatened by him. But the disciples, they're sticking with Jesus. And he takes them aside. We're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. How confusing this must have been because they arrive at Jerusalem with, with sort of the sorrow of these words and trying to understand the impact. And what they arrive to is this incredible, joyful celebration that was taking place. The coronation of monarchs is not completely foreign to us. Now, I know that some who are younger, it may be a little bit, but certainly in not that uh, far off history, we've had the coronation of monarchs. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm the oldest of, of the four boys in my family, uh, but I, I just seem to have, I think, a, a bigger connection to my mom's love of the monarchy, specifically Queen Elizabeth II. She respected so much and was so influenced and, and sort of passed that on to me. And I understand why a younger generation probably wanes in, in the, the influence of the monarch. But it was such a, such a big deal. And, it, and there was something so hopeful and so connected to the world through the monarchy. My mom loved it. And I was looking at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. She was 25 years old, June the 2nd, 1953, at Westminster Abbey in London. It's the only British coronation that was fully televised. At the time, costing 1.57 million pounds, which, by the way, in a 2019, it's about 43 million pounds in today's dollars or, or pounds. 14 months it took for the preparations for this coronation. There were two full rehearsals and multiple partial rehearsals. They had stands along the route, the parade route to Westminster Abbey for 100,000 or so. And uh, there was, I believe, 3 million that showed up on the day. It was watched on the BBC. Many, we are told, purchased or rented televisions just for this particular event in 1953. Uh, an average, after doing some research and surveys, an average of 17 people per television watched this event. It was the first major event to be broadcast internationally on television. Uh, now, now get this, hang with me a little bit. To make sure that Canadians could see it on the same day, RAF jets, they actually flew BBC film recordings of the ceremony across the Atlantic Ocean to the broadcast, to be broadcast by the CBC here in Canada. And so they actually did three flights while the coronation was happening, bringing 
pieces of the footage. Now, can you imagine that? Angela, Angela's in our production booth today and whoever was behind the production back in 1953, they were sending parts of the footage and taking it by jet across the ocean. So the first plane landed in Gander and the next two and, and handed it off to the Canadian Air Force who flew it to Montreal for the CBC broadcasting. And the next two flights by the RAF, uh, they actually flew to Montreal so that Canadians could watch it on the same day. U.S. networks had planes that flew as well. They dispatched the film to Sydney and they had some of the record times, 53 hours and 28 minutes. Those were record times back then of taking the footage to Australia. The worldwide television audience for this coronation was estimated at just under 300 million people. 200 microphones, you can go on and on, 200 microphones lined the, the drive of Westminster Abbey, 750 co commentators broadcasting in 39 different languages and on and on it goes. So we're not that far. We're not that far from the regal, uh, the coronation of monarchy, even in our day. 2,000 years ago, Jerusalem experienced a coronation. It tells us that people spread their garments on the road. It's as if they were saying, we place ourselves at your feet, even to walk over if necessary. Others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. This Matthew passage that we read, it says they cut branches. John tells us more specifically in John chapter 12, verse 13, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. We hope to have in our live service uh, today, we hope to have palm branches that we can wave, just being reminded. And, and you know, palm branches today may just mean southern nice weather or Hawaii or Florida but back then the palm branch the tree it symbolized salvation and it symbolized joy and it was a picture of an ultimate coronation to come you see this may have felt like the ultimate coronation but it was not it was not. Redemption was still to be paid. Let's look at the ultimate a picture that we have from Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, says John, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could number or count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, that there was praise that was rising up to the king, the king of kings. Queen Elizabeth, she received a royal crown that day in 1953. Jesus' coronation, it ended differently. He ended up having a crown of thorns and a Roman cross and a cruel death. How do we understand this? How do we begin to perceive all of this? The world monarchs often chose strong and combatant animals for ceremonies. You ever watch Lord of the Rings? Thoroughbred uh, horses or imposing elephants or even camels, but not so much God's people. Jesus actually fulfilled a prophecy here 
by riding on a donkey. Matthew 21, 5 says, See, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl, the foal of a donkey. This symbolic action, there was humility, there was kingship, yet there was humility. It showed his true identity and showed the character. It was somehow a picture of the character of this kingdom. So, because this is a different kind of king. This is a king who's born in a manger, and riding on a donkey and willing to carry a cross for humanity and die for us. He carried our sin. Matthew eleven twenty eight. what would Jesus say to the people? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. What does he say? For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And that is the invitation that he still offers us today is to come to him. This was the last major public appearance before the cross. Jerusalem would kill their king. This day, the people acclaimed Jesus as their king by their words and by their deeds for the moment. But it was not long lived because a very few short days later, we have recorded by John, John 19, 15. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And what is the answer? We have no king but Caesar. What, what happened here? The triumphal entry into Jerusalem not only fulfilled prophecy, but it forced the exposure of the hearts of the Pharisees. It's like thing came, things came to a head, uh, to the apex, to the, to the crossing of ways. Earlier, the Pharisees had said to one another, John 12, 19, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world is going after him. And of course, when he comes into Jerusalem, it seemed exactly that way. They were all going after Jesus and they were so jealous and they were so steeped in their own ways and immovable. So now we come back to Matthew 21, verse 10. And this is what it was. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Who is this? Peter, who do you say that I am? To the disciples, who do you say that I am? After this commotion, the people are asking, what's going on here? Who, who could possibly uh, bring this much commotion? And they're stirred. And this is the answer that they receive. Verse 11, the crowds answered, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It's interesting, multitude knew who Jesus was, um, but they didn't understand or they didn't truly believe, even though they knew. Their words, when they shouted, uh, they were prophetic words. They were profound words. They were Messiah words. They were God words. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus as the son of David. It was the most common title that was used for Messiah all the way down 
through the prophets. Hosanna, save us, is what it means. Save us now, save us, Messiah. They were right in their belief. Their words were right, but wrong in their belief about the sort of deliverer that he was. They knew he was a king, but they did not understand the nature of his kingship or of his kingdom. And I want us to remember, hang with us just a little longer here. Remember Jesus' words to Pilate. John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom, to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is not, this is, this is a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom of the heart. The Romans, they weren't their greatest threat. And oftentimes the thing that we see as the greatest threat is not our greatest threat. The Romans, they were godless, cruel oppressors, and the Lord would not allow them to survive indefinitely. Rome is no more as it was. But there was something a lot more vital than the Romans. They wanted Jesus to destroy Rome, but not their sins or their hypocritical, superficial religion. You see, the greatest oppressor, it was sin, because it's out of sin that comes hatred and, and murder and, and all of the, the ugliness of our human nature. And they refused to be delivered from the real oppressor. A few days later, these crowds would shout again, but very, very different messages. They shouted back, no, no, not him. Give us Barabbas, they said. They wanted Jesus on their own terms, and they would not bow to a king who was not to their liking, even though he was the son of God. And so the pertinent question here for all of us is, who do you say that he is? We have to wrestle with it today. Who do we say that Jesus is? Now, I'm assuming I am speaking to many who would answer like Peter today on this broadcast. I, I am assuming that I'm speaking to many who would answer like Peter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, who do, what do others say? Well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say a prophet. What do you say? And it's Peter who speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I'm assuming that there are many watching these, these YouTube, uh, Facebook broadcasts. That, that's what you would say. So for you, the question, and for me, the question, it turns a little bit now. Because we've answered, uh, will we live what we know? Oh, there's a bigger question, right? That we don't have a lot of time for. Will we allow the reality of Christ to inform not only just our words, but our actions? And that's where the enemy keeps us in such strongholds at times, and God wants to set us free. I imagine that there are some here who have never really answered the question. If you're asked, who do you say that Jesus is? You haven't really. Do you know that the Bible says in John 1.12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. This Jerusalem coronation, it was a short-lived celebration. He had not come to that time to be crowned, but he actually came to this time 
to be crucified and to the, pay the price of redemption. The king in a manger would be the king of the cross and he would die for his people, but then he would raise. And listen, next week we're going to be celebrating Easter along with, with hundreds of millions of believers around the globe and in our nation who love Jesus. And we hope that you will too. But this was not the time. This was not the time. This was still the time of sorrow. Jesus will be crowned one day in a way that is right on target. The times of rejection will be over. And we get a glimpse of it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who do you say that Jesus is? And I want to encourage you today on this Palm Sunday. I want to encourage you to answer that question. And in your spirit, maybe just quiet yourself for a moment now or after you sort of click the off button here on YouTube and just say, who do I say that Jesus is? And how will I respond? Respond accordingly that he is the one who died for us. He is the one who went the distance to pay redemption so that we could have eternal life. We didn't realize our predicament, the people in Jerusalem that day. How could they have understood? To them, the most obvious oppressor was Rome, but there was a much bigger oppressor that Jesus was dealing with on that day. Let's answer the question. He is Lord. Make him Lord of your life. Have a wonderful Palm Sunday. Continue to grow in the Lord. Ask questions, reach out to one another, uh, reach out to us. If we can help you, we'll try to do that. But, but just continue to be encouraged in the Lord and let him do all that he wants to do in you. Let me pray. Thank you, God, what you did for us, this, this amazing other coronation. Not like our earthly coronation, so different than our 1953 coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Because you came for a sober, sobering task. You came to pay the price of redemption, and it was a high, high price. And what now is given to us free, the, the grace that we receive, not of works, we can't boast because we can't earn it, we can't be good enough for it. It costs you everything. And so God, who do we say that you are? We say that you are Lord, you are Christ, you are King, you are Messiah and you want to live in our hearts. And I pray that you would help us to not just open our hearts, but our hands and our feet and allow you to live in and throughout our whole being as we stand in gratefulness for what you have done. We give you praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So good. So good to have you here. I want to give you our benediction today and we've been using 2 Corinthians 13:11 which says this Finally brothers rejoice aim for restoration comfort one another agree with one another live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you mm -hmm.